I'm honestly um, kind of a man set free a little bit uh, today. For the past uh, month or more, I have been unable to even be in this room until just a few minutes before um, I preach, and so I've not been able to enjoy what you've been able to enjoy at home, the, the worship service. So this is Actually, for the first time, it feels like in over a month, the longest absence in my life, I have been able to be in a worship service. And I so appreciate Pastor John and Jeremy and all of our uh, various uh, volunteers who have, have been leading us in worship. But I know that we hunger and that we long for the opportunity to be able to get back together again. And as Jonathan, Pastor Jonathan mentioned earlier in our worship service today, the elders are kind of finalizing some details on that today, and we're really looking forward to being able to share those with you. I just want to remind you again, we're living in a different world, and if you think that we're all just going to come rolling back in here and it's going to be just like it was on March the 1st, you're naive. We're going to have to pay very close attention to what we need to do, and it's going to result in some changes that are going to be very new and very um, different from anything that you've ever kind of experienced before. But if we will all be patient with one another, and if we'll all show grace with one another, I believe we're going to be able to get back together and start worshiping on both of our campuses uh, very soon. And then we will just live in that new reality, just like we've lived for the past two months in this online reality, until the circumstances allow us to be able to change. Uh, we have been a people set free these past uh, a few days of the stay-at-home order uh, ended Monday morning here in Johnson County, and we're finally starting to come out of, at least slowly, our coronavirus hibernation. Uh, and though we can plainly see that there are aspects of our lives that will be forever different from what they were the first of the year, we are starting to feel like maybe we can resume life, that it's over. And I'm not certain at all that it really is over. I think there will be other changes that will come and maybe even some steps back. But I get the hope. We have a, a flicker of light at the end of our dark tunnel, and we have just come through an unprecedented time in any of our lives, and at least this initial phase of that new uh, order is over, and we're able to start kind of resuming something that looks like life. And this reminds us that every trial that we go through in life has its set boundaries. It reminds us that every season of suffering that we will ever go through in life will eventually end. And it is on that hopeful note that we'll conclude our series from Job this morning uh, by looking at Job 42. Why don't you find in your copy of God's Word, Job 42. Next week, we will resume our journey through the letters of John. So we will pick up where we left off. I believe uh, Micah Hayes was the last one that preached from 1 John. So where he ended, we will move forward. All of that is coming, but today we finish in Job 42. And as you turn there, I want to ask you a question. What has been your lesson in all of this? Say 10 years from now, when someone asks you, what were your big takeaways from that, that COVID-19 crisis? What are you going to tell them? 
Are you going to tell them that you ran down every conspiracy theory known to man to try to figure out what's going on in the world? Are you going to tell them that you, you sat in a, a corner and, and, and wrung your hands in worry? And are you going to tell people that you became more anxious and, and more angry and, and a whole lot of things? Or are you going to tell them that you had some really profound, deeply impacting takeaways about your life with God? I hope that you'll do that. Because that's exactly what Job will do with his takeaways as he comes to his ending, this season of suffering in his life. And we see that in Job 42. It's a relatively short chapter. So if you would please just follow along as I read it in its entirety this morning. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." And after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then, he came, then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy, and they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jeminiah, and the name of the second, Keziah. And the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations, and Job died an old man full of days. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we see Job come out of suffering, that we will learn the lessons and have the experience with you that Job himself had. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right, so Job is released from his pain. He's made it through. And here's what he's learned. I hope we learn it as well. First, suffering ends with a deeper appreciation for God's magnificence. Now, it troubles some that uh, read Job uh, to see that he who committed no sin worthy of this experience would repent anyway. 
in dust and ashes. But to read it that way is to misunderstand what the first six verses of Job 42 represent. Job there is not repenting of a sin that he didn't commit, a sin that brought on this suffering. He's repenting of a sin that he committed while he was suffering. And what was the sin? If you look at Job's words closely, it's pretty simple. He's repenting of the sin of making God small. As Job wrestled with this nightmare of pain and confusion, he began to question whether God actually knew what he was doing. Remember, he eventually argued that God should show up, demand that God show up and explain himself. He even claimed that God had not been just in his treatment of him and insinuated that if he himself, Job, had God's job, he would have done it differently and he would have done it better. And so when God showed up in Job 38, he asked, who is this who darkens my counsel, who questions my justice, who questions my providential care of creation without knowledge? Job quotes that question in his words in Job 42, and he essentially says, the answer to this is, I've got nothing. I, I, I spoke without really knowing what's going on. God also said in his questioning of Job, pay attention and I will speak. I will question you and you will answer me. But Job, Job said, I thought you'd been unfair, but now I've seen you with my eyes and I realize that I was wrong to doubt you, wrong to question you. Now credit Job with this. He never abandoned his pursuit of God in all of this. He never doubted that God would speak. And that's ultimately, you see, what saved him, this kind of dogged push towards God. Because if he had given up in his low spots where he thought God had been unfair to him, unjust to him, if he had walked away from God at that point, his view of God would have forever remained diminished. But because he stayed in hot pursuit of God, even when he didn't understand what was going on, even when he jacked it up occasionally in thinking about God, because he stayed in this dogged pursuit of God, he's able to come out of suffering, seeing God for who he was, that magnificent sovereign who is in charge of the universe, who perfectly attends to its every need and is accomplishing relentlessly every single second of existence his perfect purposes for that universe. This idea of the magnificence of God being the takeaway from a time of difficulty was brought home to me in the most intense season of, of vocational trial, of, of trial as a pastor that I've been through in ministry. I went into that season 17 years ago now, committed to God as king, but, uh, but pretty stinking competent in Derek as pastor. And in that season, I was forced to lock in as tightly in my pursuit of God as I ever had because that was the only way I was going to get through. And I came out of it with a diminished view of myself and an exalted view of God. I went into that season quietly convinced that God was pretty lucky to have me and came out of that season convinced that I was nothing at all 
without God. And you'll waste this trial if you come out of it with the same view of God that you had when you went into it. And the only way that you're going to come out with an exalted view of God is if you start pursuing Him above all else. Quit chasing down every ridiculous rumor that you can find on the internet as some kind of conspiratorial answer for what is going on in this world. We had Zoom difficulties this morning. I have no doubt that by the end of the day, there will be a rumor on the internet that George Soros bombed Zoom so Southern Baptists couldn't have Sunday school. No doubt whatsoever. People will believe that stuff. Why do they believe that stuff? Because there's a hunger to know what's really going on. Let me tell you what's really going on. God's in control. God's in charge. So, So start looking to Him. Pour the same energy in trying to figure out what's going on behind the scenes that you are on on social media and on the internet and take that attention and fix it on God. And you'll come out of this more convinced than ever that God is in control because as Job, you will have seen him. We also learn from Job's experience that when suffering ends, it brings a deeper appreciation for God's compassion. In verse 7, God turns his attention from Job to his friends. Now, at least these men would have considered themselves friends and Job's friends before the experience. I'm not certain Job would have considered them friends after this experience. Because over the course of their attempts to help Job, they had started to abuse Job with this understanding of God that was woefully incomplete and had reached a conclusion about God that, or about Job that, that couldn't have been any less accurate. In their minds, God was something of an impassive, unfeeling dispenser of what you and I today might call karma. And thus, the only explanation they had for Job's predicament was that karma had finally caught up with Job. In fact, they became so competitive in this and so angry at Job for failing to just cave to them that their encouragement turned into accusations of the most baseless kinds of claims of immorality on Job's part. They just couldn't be wrong. And so they were letting him have it. Back during my my season as trial as a pastor at a previous church, 14 years ago this week, as a matter of fact, just to let you know how this has all burned into my mind, I had three friends who, in a meeting with our deacon leadership at that church, said they believed that I, as their pastor, was no longer listening to God. Now, our deacon leadership vehemently disagreed with that conclusion, and I suggested to them that the reason that they said I was no longer listening to God is that because they had confused my listening to them with actually listening to God. But I will tell you, in almost 35 years of doing my job, I have never been more hurt. I, I remember 14 years later, the week that it happened. Now, that meeting signaled the conclusion of my trial because these three men realized that they wouldn't be able to run me away from that church and run me out of town, and so they left 
with several dozen of the people that they had been able to influence to start their own church in our community. And with that undercurrent of conflict out of the way, the spirit of the church changed completely. But I'm going to be honest, though things were better for me, I wouldn't have minded at all if God had just let those three clowns have it. So I easily imagine my reaction had I heard God say to the ringleader of these men what God says to the ringleader of Job's friends in verse 7. In verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the, Eliphaz the, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. He says, boys, you were completely wrong in your characterization of me. Job was right in the sense that he understood that the experience that he was having with this trial was for something other than sin. And if I had heard those words, my flesh would have leapt out a, a war hoop. I would have said, I told you, I told you I was right. I knew you were wrong. And now you are going to get it. And I would have waited in delight for the hammer to fall. But that's not what God had in mind. Verse 8, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, cut through all of that. What is Job being asked to do for these people who have inflicted such damage on them? He's being asked to pray for their forgiveness. I, I try to imagine how I would have felt if God had asked me to pray for the forgiveness of the men who had made my life so miserable for three years. And just as my flesh would have rejoiced in God's condemnation of my adversaries, my flesh also would have recoiled, I'm just being honest, at God's command to pray for their forgiveness. But reaction that I would have had was not the same as Job's. Look at verse 9. So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer, meaning what? Job prayed for him. What did Job pray? Job prayed that God would forgive these people who have hurt him so badly. Now, how could Job have, have done seemingly so easily what would have admittedly been so hard for me? It's very simple. Job had turned from his inward gaze on himself and on his trial and turned it upward to God. He had seen in God his glory and he had seen in God his magnificence. He allowed his trial to bring him to the realization that he was small but that God was big. And with that proper orientation, he never dreamed of doing anything other than what this magnificent God would ask him to do. Why is it so hard for us to forgive others? 
Jesus says in the parable of the unforgiving servant that it's because we've never fully grasped the mercy that we have been shown and the magnificence of the God who has shown it to us. We, we can hold comparatively small offenses against another because we fail to grasp the enormity of our offense against the holiness of that God, and thus the enormity of His mercy and therefore the magnificence of His person. Have you ever noticed the gentleness of someone who has come through a period of intense trial? Ever ever noticed their compassion? It's because their dogged pursuit of God in their suffering and His personal care for them during it causes them to have a new appreciation for God's compassion and how they can be vehicles of it in the world in which we live. So the answer as to why we might struggle to forgive, why I struggled for so long to forgive, could be that we haven't yet been through a deep enough trial. How's that for you? Because when we do, and when that trial ends, we can't help but have a deeper appreciation for God's compassion. Finally, We learn from Job's experience that suffering ends with a deeper appreciation for God's blessings. We see in the concluding verses that all that Job had that he had lost was given back with interest, that he doubled all of his assets that he had lost in the opening chapters. There's something beautiful, though, in all of this that that folks have long noted that I want to make certain that we all see here this morning. The expectation in reading the list of Job's return blessings would would be that, that the 10 children that Job lost before the trial would be replaced with 20 children afterwards. But the children born to him post trial equal in number those he lost when disaster fell. Why? It's a It's a subtle but very clear nod to the fact that death is not the end of us. The ten children Job had lost were alive with God. So his children were doubled in number, and he would be with them all one day. It's a peek into eternity. But what I think stands out the most to me as we read about uh, these children are what is said of the three daughters beginning in verse 14. Look at that. It says, And he called the name of his first daughter Jeminiah, and the name of his second daughter Keziah, and the name of the third Karanapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. Their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Now the attention of the modern reader would likely fall on the description of their beauty. But the attention of those reading this and hearing this in the ancient world would have fallen on two very different things. First, names were given for the girls. Names were given for the girls, and none of the boys' names were listed. Listen, it's not highly unusual at all for the names of daughters to be mentioned in the Bible. But it is almost unheard of for the names of the daughters to be listed and for the sons' names to remain unknown. Second, we are told that all three daughters are said to have been given at inheritance. And again, I can't think of another situation in Scripture. There may be one. I can't think of another situation in Scripture where where the daughters born to a man are given an inheritance along with the other brothers. So what does all of this mean? 
Admittedly, this is a bit speculative. But I think there's an argument to be made that it indicates that Job had a deeper appreciation for God's blessings after his trial. Don't get me wrong, fathers loved their daughters in the ancient world. But boys were valued. Sons were the real blessing. So for us to be given the daughters' names and to learn that they shared in Job's inheritance like their brothers could very likely indicate that Job's trial had deepened his appreciation for all of his blessings to value in the same way all of his children. He just wouldn't take that for granted anymore. I've always been generally pretty healthy, but nine years ago I had to have surgery. It took me out for a couple of weeks, and as soon as I started, started to feel better, I got bronchitis. Ain't nobody got time for that. And so for another two weeks, I didn't feel good. So for the first time in my life, I had a full month of my life where I just felt rotten. And that gave me a new appreciation for what it's like for members of the church with chronic illnesses, people that I've shepherded shepherded over the years. And it also gave me a deeper appreciation of how great it is to feel well. Suffering will do that. It will deepen your appreciation for what you have. And part of the grace of a trial is that you come out of it more grateful for the amazing blessings that you have always considered normal. Again, I don't really believe that we're anywhere near the end of how this pandemic is going to affect us. But we are, either because it is legitimately safer to do so or because we simply have to returning to something that looks like life. So, what have these last two months taught you? I pray in some small way for all of us that we've come to a deeper appreciation for God's magnificence, for His compassion, and for His blessings. Most of all, if you didn't have this appreciation already, I pray that these past two months have given you a perspective on how magnificent the plan of God is to save us, how compassionate is the Savior who saves us, and how blessed it is to be saved by that Savior. I pray that you've come to see your need for an anchor called Jesus to get you through your life. If you have never given your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, We want to give you an opportunity to let us know you want to know more and you want to know how to do that. I would encourage you to just email us at justask at bluevalleybaptist.org. Justask at bluevalleybaptist.org. Tell us you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus. You can also email us at that address if you have just a question or a prayer request. We'll be happy to answer it. But let's not waste what we've been through or what is to come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being a God who is above all and who is behind and the cause of all things. Father, we, we thank you for being a God of great compassion who walks through us or with us in a present way through the the trials and the difficulties of life, who stays just enough distant from us to cause us to continue to reach out and run and pursue so that the finding of you and hearing your voice is all the sweeter. Thank you, God, for the blessings that you give us in life. Most of all, thank you for giving us 
you. And I pray, Father, that we'll all come through this loving you deeper than we've ever loved you before. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.